This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. I am really privileged today to be able to visit again with a wonderful Christian whom I've really grown to admire the more I get to know her. Laura Perry is a former transgender, and she has told her story before, both on this show and also during our God's Voice conference. And now I'm really excited. Laura has put out a book. It's called Transgender to Transformed, a story of transition that will truly set you free. And we're going to touch on not only the Lord's work in her own life, but also her perspective on how to reach out to those you might encounter who are dealing with this issue of gender dysphoria. Laura, it is just my privilege to have you back. How are you doing? Great to have you here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be back. I'm doing really well. The Lord has just um, continued to bless my life. Oh, I'm so excited about your book, and I hope everybody will read this because your story probably is one of the greatest testimonies I've ever heard, and I bet you hear that a lot, don't you? I do, yeah, and it just, it amazes me, um, not just being transgender, and I, I honestly never, ever, ever thought I would leave the lifestyle, but also just, you know, I was bound and determined not to be a Christian. Yes. <laughs> I just hated God. Yes. Yeah, it's incredible what the Lord has done in your life, and I know we've done a show before where you've told your entire testimony, but for listeners who missed our last interview, I wonder if you could just do a very brief recap of how it was that you left transgenderism and became a Christian. Sure. Um, I had um, grown up most of my life believing that I was uh, supposed to be a boy. I um, tried to act like boys. There was a lot of jealousy of my brother. So there were various things in childhood that had played into that, but I didn't really understand that. By the time I made the decision to be transgender, all I knew was that I um, felt this way and I had to be a man and was really convinced I was a man trapped in a woman's body and um, began to take the hormones and grow the facial hair. My voice began to get lower. It was even lower then than it is now, I think. And um, uh, and then I eventually had two major surgeries. I had um, both breasts removed. I even had a um, like a chest reconstruction um, to look more like a male chest. It was formed that way. And then also had all the female organs removed. And so I was very serious about it and very determined and never thought I would go back. But I really found it to be completely empty. It wasn't what it was promised to be. And I was really angry when I realized that transition wasn't possible. And as much as I wanted to be a man, that I really was a woman and I just couldn't face it. Um, But then my mom, who I'd I'd been angry with my mom for a lot of my life and really wanted nothing to do with her. Um, But she had asked me to make a website for her Bible study. (laughs) And as I began to read her notes, because I was honestly just going to make a summary of each lesson for her. She hadn't even asked me to do that, but I thought it would be a good idea. And as I did, I began to read the notes, and the Word of God just began to penetrate my heart. And I'll never forget, I think what really changed me was for the first time in my life, I saw God's Word not just as a rule book, um, but all of a sudden I was beginning to see the heart and the character of God. (laughs) And it just totally changed my perspective on God. 
And then as I started calling her and asking her questions, and for about six months we talked almost every single day, and as we did, um, I realized that my mom had completely changed, and she had been totally transformed. And when I recognized that, I it was at that moment that I knew the gospel was true. And not just intellectually true, but all of a sudden it was real, and yeah. I could see God completely transform her. And that's when I gave my life to Christ. And, you know, I thought I was going to be a man of God, and I thought, this is awesome, you know, and I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to um, be this great man of God. But, you know, God, he was patient with me, but he didn't leave me there, and he began to convict me, and he drew me out of it. And I think ultimately um, I heard the truth more and more. I was more convicted all the time, and then finally I felt like I'd fallen into a deep, dark pit that I couldn't get out of, and I'll never forget I cried out to the Lord and asked him to just take my life. I said, just let me die, because I cannot fix this. I didn't know how to get out of it. And he finally reached his hand down into the pit I was in, and I had this vision of Jesus. And he said, do you trust me? <laughs> and so that's when he, he basically asked me to leave it and to just walk by faith. And he promised me that he would heal me. But I had to walk by faith. And yes. I was, But now I've been totally delivered and set free and... Um, it's just been incredible to watch the transformation over the last three years. Boy, it really has been. And by the way, I, I have to put in a plug because you, Laura, and your mom did a fantastic testimony together at our God's Voice conference. And if you want to watch that video, and you should watch that video and send it to everybody you know, you can go to godsvoice.us and you can view that video. It's well worth your time. What an incredible time that was. We were all bawling at the end of that testimony between yeah. you and your mom. That was just such a wonderful work of the Lord. You know, it's interesting. I think many people have questions about what it's like to live that way. Here you were, you were a girl, you made these transitions to try to become a boy, you lived your life as a boy, you really wanted to be physically a boy. Did you have any doubts, Laura, when you were going through this, like maybe I shouldn't be doing this, maybe I can't really pull this off, or were you just completely confident that what you desired to become was possible? Yeah, it was weird because at first I really believed it was possible. And um, at, at first when everybody knew that I was transgender, I really wasn't all that worried about it because it was like one day this will be real. And so now I know there's going to be a couple of awkward years in between, and that's okay. So I wasn't that worried about it, and it was fun. It's kind of like being at an amusement park. While you're there and you're riding all these rides, it's you know so much fun, and everything's new and exciting and all these thrills, and there's all these changes. Um, but when the ride stopped and it's time to go home and you're, you're just back to life, I remember feeling devastated that, wait a minute, this was, you know, it wasn't real. And I'll never forget, I got really angry, actually, when I looked at the, I started looking into the general reassignment surgeries, because that, that had always been a part of the plan. Um, I just assumed that I would, and I would be fully male. And I remember looking and thinking, um, I was very angry that no one had told me how horrible these surgeries were. <sighs> Um, first of all, that they're never real, that um, they will, most of the time they say the girls will never have any sexual sensation. A lot of times they, um, I mean, it just will destroy your sex life. I don't want to get too graphic, but they say, in fact, there's an inside source I have. This hadn't even been released publicly, but I know a guy that knows this, um, that there's a girl that's had 31 corrective surgeries <gasps> Ooh. because it is so bad. And so um, wow. I was really angry when I found out that not only was this surgery out of my reach financially, it would have cost me about a hundred grand. It would have been a series of three surgeries, but the results are horrible, and it would have left me with horrible scarring. And so that's when I really realized, um, 
but even even if I had, I realized that this was all fake. Everything I was doing wasn't real, and it was never going to be real no matter what I did. And it didn't dawn on me that the hormones never change the, the DNA hmm. of your body. And sure. your cell, you have 37 or so or whatever it is, a trillion cells in your body. And every one of them records your sex chromosomes. Wow. Your body's screaming at you over and over and over that you are male or female. Wow. Did you have moments where your femaleness kicked in, you know, just so broadly yeah. that you couldn't deny it, say, boy, I'm still acting like a girl. I may yes. have had these surgeries, but um, I'm still kind of acting female here. Yeah, it's funny. I noticed it more in my partner, though. This was the funny thing. I was dating... Um, uh, a guy that was a male-to-female transgender, and I used to get so frustrated because I could see in him the truth I couldn't see in myself. <laughs> and it drove me crazy because I kept thinking no matter what he's doing, all the hormones he's taking and he's wearing the wig and he's you know, um, wearing these female clothes, and no matter what he's doing, he is such a man. And he was just <laughs> wired that way. And um, But mm. I began to see it later in myself, and sometimes I would have these... Um, these, just these moments of um, being reminded of it. I remember one in particular. I was standing in this group of guys years into my transition. I was at a job where I was only known as male. No one knew I was transgender. And I'm just standing in this group of only guys, and there was something intangible that I couldn't even put my finger on. I just knew I was different. And I <laughs> thought, I'm just, I just don't think like them. Right. And it was um, something that I really couldn't even define. But I was like, there is a clear difference here between the sexes. That's when it really dawned on me. That's interesting. And that's exactly what I was wondering, if you had those sorts of moments where I think every girl can talk about that, being around guys and going, boy, you guys are just not like me. Right. <laughs> you just don't get it. You don't get what we're made of as women. And that's what's so interesting and fascinating. We're going to take a short break. Laura Perry coming back. The book is called Transgender to Transformed. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today after this. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford. On a 100-degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, 30-year-old Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to its owner, one of only a few in that church of hundreds to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single 
verse in his own Bible because Bibles are very difficult to obtain where he lives. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $50 sends 10. Call 800-YES-WORD. 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Meffer today. It is a delight for me to welcome back to the program Laura Perry. Her great book, Transgender to Transformed, is a story of transition that will truly set you free. Hers is a work of grace at the hands of Jesus Christ. Uh, unlike a testimony I've ever heard before, she is amazing. She was struggling with transgenderism, and as she's been telling her story and her testimony, she thought she was male. She went through the surgeries, and then the Lord set her free, and it's just an incredible story. Laura, we were talking a little bit about the fact that you could not at certain junctures deny that you were female and you noticed in the person you were dating who was a male to female transgender uh, that at times you would think he's such a man you know and these sorts of things are undeniable what I'm what I'm curious about is what is the reality of the transgender experience? Because what is really coming across all the time across the transom is the media is always hyping, oh, he's really a woman trapped in a male body, and this is what he says. And they always put forward a story that it's absolutely clear I'm in the wrong body, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm not thinking in any kind of a crazy way, society is my problem, the reason I feel so depressed is because of society, and society is not accepting me in my identity. What is your reaction to those narratives? Well, and that's what I, I really believed at the time. Um, but I've learned now, having come out of it, um, that not only did I have deep issues from childhood, um, but everyone I've ever known that has lived in this transgender lifestyle did as well. I think it may be changing a little now just because this is being pushed on children that don't even understand sex or gender yet. Right. Um, but to those that have really struggled with this, um, every single one that I have ever known has um, been sexually abused in some way. Sometimes it's a exposure to pornography. Um, sometimes it's um, being molested, being raped. Um, and, of course, that's not to say it's 100% of cases, but it's, I think, everyone that I know. And then also, um, the other common thing that I see is a, a deep issue with one of the parents. Um, again, I, I know I didn't get it into it too much on this program, but I did in the book about I had a really rough relationship with my mom growing up and I'd kind of rejected women entirely over the years. Yeah. And uh, so I had this deep hatred of, of, of women, but I didn't really even realize until um, you asked a little bit about the experience going through this. I really believed when I first started transition that this would all be possible, but it was actually, and I kept thinking, um, I would one day find this freedom. One day I would truly be comfortable in this. One day this is all going to be real. But actually it was the opposite. And as the more I transitioned, the more I was affirmed, the more that I was really perceived to be male, the more of a living hell it became. And it really became my prison um, because I was so bound to this identity. And I began to be more and more afraid because, for example, once I was, um, it, once it wasn't obvious that I was transgender and I was just perceived as male, I was going into these male restrooms, and then I had this thought, well, what if somebody finds out? <sighs> and then I was really scared because I knew that I'd either be beat up or raped or who knows, you know. <sighs> um, 
and so there was a lot of fear there. Or even like this is a um, one of my biggest regrets. I was working at a middle school, and the some of the kids had figured out that I was transgender. I've noticed that kids are more perceptive, especially if they're not taught this um, uh, this narrative, um, like they are being now. But uh, they were more perceptive than the adults. So the adults really thought that I was a man. But some of the kids had figured it out, and he had, the principal asked me to go into the bathroom one day and get these three boys that were goofing off. And I was really conflicted because I didn't want the principal to know, but these boys had confronted me like a day or two before hmm. and asked about it. And so I walked in to this boy's bathroom, and all three were standing at the urinal, and I'll never, ever forget the look on their face. You could see that they felt violated, and they started yelling at me to get out, hmm. and um, they turned and covered themselves, you know, and it was just... Wow. It was a humiliating moment, and I realized I didn't belong in there. Yeah. I violated these young men. You know, that's interesting because whenever we talk about these bathroom policies, we always think of the girls and the girls' reaction when a man will walk in claiming to be a woman. But it's interesting that that also does happen with boys, which makes total sense. It does, yeah. And it, it's a violation of their privacy, and um, it exposes them to something they shouldn't be exposed to. Right. You know, right. and we're like, we're always, you know, even the church in trying to deal with this is always looking at it from this, this one poor soul who wants to do this and believes this. But we're not thinking about, um, like we had a guy recently in our church that wanted to use our women's restrooms. And I'm like, what about these little preschool and kindergarten girls yes. going in here? Right. I, I'm sorry. I don't right. want them exposed to this. Right. That's exactly. And you know whereof you speak, Laura. You have incredible credibility on this right. issue. I, you know, I'm also curious, did anybody ever try to stop you when you were trying to go through this transition to become male? Did you have any health professional say to you, maybe you need to go through counseling and make sure that you are not dealing with some deeper issue? Because one of the things I've heard from some of these people who have detransitioned is the fact that the medical health profession is just all in on this and they, they don't try to stop you. Was that your experience? Experience? Well, that's the really sad part, I think, because it was a legal requirement at the time for me to go into counseling. Otherwise, I'd have never gone. I didn't have any interest in it. And so I had to have a minimum of three sessions that I'm just kind of mindlessly answering her questions. And all of a sudden, one day she put down her notebook and looked right in my eyes and said, wow, you really have issues with your mom. And I was stunned. I was like, how did we get from talking about me wanting to be a man to talking about my mom? And I blew up at her and I was like, I'm not here to talk about my mom. And she said, so all you want is for me to give you the hormones. Or she would give me a letter rather to give to my doctor. And I said, yes, that's all I'm here for. Hmm. And she said, okay. And she just gave it to me. Rather than pressing in, she had made the connection. You know, why... I, why did she not push me on that and say at least, at the very least, okay, let's have a couple more sessions. Let's see if this really is an issue. Yeah. This would help you. Yeah. But no, she just gave in and gave me what I wanted. Wow. I mean, you wouldn't do that in any other kind of mental disorder. No, you wouldn't. Um, you, wouldn't. you know, you would help the person. Boy, so, if, so for people listening who might know somebody who's going through this sort of scenario... What can you do to help? I mean, even if you're not a mental health professional, you're just a concerned friend or family member, what can you do? Clearly pray for the person, but what yeah. sorts of tips would you give to Christians listening to say, handle the person this way, speak about these things, go in this direction? I think, and and you touched on it, the number one thing is prayer. This really, it, it is, when people begin to believe this, it's so deep-seated um, into, into their psyche, and they really begin to believe it's who they are. A lot of times they've been abused. Um, but also, I think 
um, a great way to approach it is to begin to ask questions, see if you can reconnect. Because I wish she had pushed me more on where my issues were with my mom. Because she wasn't, she wasn't to blame. I don't blame my mother. But that's where this seed started very, very early in life. And um, for these kids that have been abused, they need to recognize that connection. See if you can... And a lot of times if you ask them, like... Um, you know, when did these feelings start? Most of them will tell you they've always felt that way. Well, <laughs> don't let them get away with that because, you know, no one or two-year-old understands uh, what sex is or what gender is or you know, any of that. Right. So, you know, no, okay, think about it. When do you remember first really feeling this way? And then see why they begin to feel that way. Um, a lot of them can tell you. And sometimes it may be just misunderstanding. I'll never forget, I found a video one day of a little boy that's being medically transitioned and his reasons for wanting to be a girl, he said, well, I really like the color pink and I like uh, the way girls wear their hair and I like their pretty clothes. And that was his reasons. And so his parents are like, no, he's really a girl. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. And it's just, it's so maddening. Yeah. And these, um, you know, these little boys that want to be drag queens, uh, <sighs> at least two of them that I've heard, their mothers were watching RuPaul's Drag Race. Talking oh, about my amazing these drag queens word, were. really. Yeah. 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 So yeah. as it becomes popularized in the culture, right. the mom wants to be cool and, you know, oh, yeah, let's affirm him in his non-sex and let's take him to the drag queen story hour. And I mean, how do you feel about these kids being exposed to this stuff at such a young age? I think it, it, I am grieved. I can't even describe, uh, you know, these kids being exposed to this are going to be so confused. They're, they're, they're like a wash at sea. Like they, they can't even figure out how, who they are. They have no grounding if we don't tell them. Um, and they're, they're being groomed for, um, to be molested, honestly, for pedophilia. Because these, um, there was a drag queen story hour recently that a friend got some undercover video on. And they were reading a story called What Color Is Your Underwear? Oh. And it was one of these books where it has, you remember the old books where they would have this little flap that you could pull up and it would reveal something underneath? Yeah. Well, imagine what color is your underwear. <gasps> so they're pulling up this flap and it's revealing what color underwear. And then this last one, it says, oh, he's not wearing any underwear. Are you kidding me? That's horrible. No, that's, <sighs> parents have really got to wake up to what's going on. This is not some new wonderful thing. Uh, their their kids are being groomed. And, oh, yeah. Um, so we absolutely want to help people that are struggling with it. But we've also got got to wake up to what's going on. And we've got to teach our children that God really did make the sexes. Um, he made them differently. He did make them binary. There is a male and a female. Yes. Um, you know, and he really did make them different. And the, the sexes, when you really begin to understand God's creation, um, put the gospel on display. We're to represent um, Christ in the church. That's right. That's and right. I think it's a beautiful thing when you, um, uh, one, just a book I personally recommend for anybody that's um, wanting to understand at least women is a book called Divine Design, um, True Woman 101 by Nancy, uh, it was Nancy Lee DeMoss at the time and Mary Cassian. Mm -hmm. um, it's an amazing book on um, just understanding how God made women. Well, that's wonderful. I really appreciate what you're saying here, Laura. And I think one of the greatest things in all of this is how the Lord has clearly healed you. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. And it gives people hope, I'm sure, if they are struggling with the same issue and gender dysphoria and maybe some deep-seated issues like you're talking about with sexual yeah. abuse or, or a difficult relationship with maybe mom or maybe dad, that Jesus Christ 
loves you, that he really will heal you. And Laura, your story is proof positive that it's absolutely true. And that's why people need to pick up your book. It is called Transgender to Transformed, a story of transition that will truly set you free. Laura Perry joining us. Laura, thank you so much for your testimony, for your great book and for being with us again. It was wonderful to talk to you again. Thank you so much for having me on. It was such a pleasure. All right. God bless you. Laura Perry, thanks again. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. One of my favorite themes to sing about is the promise of heaven. Think about some of these great lyrics from the old hymn, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. It's hard to just say that. I feel like singing it. But have you ever wondered what the backstory is on some of these great songs and hymns about heaven? We're going to talk about it today with award-winning author Ace Collins as he discusses his book, Stories Behind the Songs and Hymns About Heaven. And it's great to have you with us, Ace. How are you doing? It's a joy to be with y'all. I am doing well. It's really uh, a fun to talk about this book. The idea came from Greg Johnson, who is my literary agent. He had uh, been to his mother-in-law's funeral, and he came back to me, and he said, I know you've got a lot of stories behind books. Have you ever thought about doing the stories behind songs about heaven? And in truth, I hadn't. And, and as I got to researching and, and working on this particular book, I found myself... Um, intrigued and also wishing I had done it much earlier. I, uh, you know, Three years ago, my father died of cancer. It would have been nice to have had the stories behind these songs in my head, as I said, by his bed. Two years ago, my, my mother uh, got Alzheimer's. The amazing thing about that was there was a, a, a girl social club from the university where my wife teaches that went out and sang uh, songs, and one of the songs they sang was victory in Jesus uh, to the Alzheimer's ward out there, the dementia ward. And my mother, who didn't even know who I was at that time and had problems carrying on a conversation, had no problem remembering all the words to Amazing Grace and Victory in Jesus. Wow. So I I think that really did project the power of these hymns uh, to be imprinted almost on our DNA, and, and therefore finding out the stories behind them, finding how many of these stories were tragic in nature, and yet faith endured in spite of that tragedy uh, makes these these stories much, much more meaningful. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, that's what you say, that a lot of these hymns really have kind of a sad backstory that the person who wrote the hymn was struggling in different ways. Different hymn writers were struggling in different ways. Well, what about Eliza Hewitt? Because Eliza Hewitt wrote When We All Get to Heaven, which I just quoted. What's the story mm-hmm. behind that one? Well, Hewitt, a bright young woman raised as an only kid in a family that taught her to be educated, to question, to reason, to think, to push herself beyond being considered a second-class citizen, which is what women were considered in the 1850s and 60s. And so she 
was taught that she had a purpose as great as any man. And she accepted the calling of being a teacher uh, in the classroom, working with underprivileged kids in a poor district. She ultimately met with tragedy because one of her students hit her with a slate. Mm-hmm. And in knocking her down, badly injured her. She was never supposed to walk again. And yet she, through sheer determination, taught herself how to walk, first a few steps at a time, and eventually where she could walk two or three blocks and and get outside and get away from this room that she had been trapped in. And she began to develop writing skills. And and it was common common in this particular point in time. Poetry was the big thing, to write poetry. And so she wrote a lot of poetry, and a lot of that centered on her faith and also her questions. And eventually, one of those poems, There is Sunshine in My Soul, uh, was published, followed by more about Jesus, followed by My Faith Has a Resting Place. And they became Christian standards. And she began to go to evangelical meetings, what, what we would call revivals. It was the big time of Dwight Moody and those people as they were circulating throughout the United States with their revivals and their week-long meetings in various places. And she came up after meeting Franny Crosby, the great blind uh, songwriter, with a concept of what heaven was going to be like. And she wrote the words and fortunately passed them on to a lady that she had met at one of these meetings. And you know, the clincher in this was dying meant victory because it allowed Christians to come together as believers without walls. And I think that was the big thing for her. She was she was very vibrant in the civil rights movement at that time. She was uh, working with ex-slaves. She was someone who believed in the quality of all men, and that's what God taught in the Bible and what Jesus stood for. And so by working with Emily Wilson, she actually created this, this crowning effort, if you can in her in her life, which I think, realistically speaking, if you read all of the verses, um, you know, first verse, fighting off crippling pain, the second verse, you know, uh, you're, you're growing, you're, you're actually trying to reach out to those who are here on earth, last verse, the reward. When you look at all those verses combined, it really tells her life story. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, and there are so many others that you highlight, for example, and I tried to pick out some of the ones that most people will probably know, but you think of the Negro spiritual swing low, sweet chariot. I think everybody knows that one. Wallace Willis, who penned that one. But what was the story behind that? Because, you know, in all honesty, I never really knew the story behind swing low, sweet chariot until I picked up your book. It's one of the fewest what we call Negro spirituals that we actually know the author of. And it's interesting that his life, you know, began life as a slave owned by, ironically enough, by a Choctaw Indian uh, in Alabama. And um, when Choctaws were forced to go, like the Cherokees, on the Trail of Tears and move to reservations, they also lost their ability to own property, and Willis was a property. Hmm. And so he, though, had to follow his master into Oklahoma, the Indian Territory. And and he was a man who taught himself how to read. He was a student of the Bible. He worked um, with a local children's school as a janitor. He was somebody who constantly was looking ways to take these students, many of whom, whom were Native Americans, and give them something where they could learn more about the faith that he had embraced as a child, the Christian faith. And in the process, he thought about the book of Ezekiel thought about the great story of the chariot, 
And you also combine that a little bit, too, with, with the knowledge that was common with a lot of, of African-Americans at the time. They, they, the Jordan River was important to them. Uh, you know, we, there's another Negro spiritualist in this book well, that was adapted into a Negro spiritual role, Jordan Roll, yeah. that, that emphasizes that as well. And on the other side of the river was freedom. And that's what heaven was for mm-hmm. people who had been enslaved. It was freedom. Finally, you'd leave the chains of this earth and go to heaven where you would be treated as an equal, where God loved you, where you wouldn't be classified as three fifths of a person, which, mm-hmm. which these people were at that particular point. And he wrote this. Now, he taught it to the children. The children loved it. We should not know it, except somebody came by and listened to it. And, and that somebody who listened to this song at the old Spencer Academy, you know, uh, was Alexander Reed. He grabbed onto it and took it back to Nashville, Tennessee, where he was from, and gave it to the Fisk Jubilee Singers, hmm. uh, the greatest spiritual choir um, in history. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, they were led by a man named Ward who collected Negro spirituals and he immediately adapted this as one of the closers they used in concerts. And it was so popular that the Queen and King of England in a royal performance asked to hear it three and four times in a row. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and so it is probably the best known of all of our of our Negro spirituals, but we can actually pin this to Wallace Willis, a former slave who found freedom in American Indian country in the uh, what we now know as Oklahoma. So interesting. And you, you also say, even though this was a song inspired by the Old Testament, it has a New Testament message, which is absolutely and true. Think, you know, yeah. if we're dealing with heaven, we're going to be dealing with New Testament messages, too. You know, um, I think Jordan, the River Jordan's mentioned in the, in the Bible 190 times. And, and most of us, you know, crossing Jordan was a very important part, obviously, for Moses, but we have used it symbolically since then as getting from this life to the next. Uh, right. uh, when, Negro, when Negro slaves would sing Roll Jordan Roll in the field, it was a sign that they were going, one of them was going to try to escape that night and get across the Ohio River. And the Ohio River, in their mind, was symbolic of Jordan. And therefore, if you cross that river, you know, you, you release the chains. You're free. And, and so, you know, the water of baptism and Jesus and the Jordan and all this. So all of these, all of these river motifs in um, songs about heaven relate to um, Jesus being baptized and also the Old Testament. Yeah. Ace, hang on just a moment. We have to pause for a quick break. Stories behind the songs and hymns about heaven. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options 
start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Why are three teenage girls walking 132 miles? I have a heart for the unborn because God does. In His Word, He tells us that we are all image bearers. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. The Ministry of Preborn introduces moms to their baby in the womb through ultrasound by letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby eight out of ten times she'll choose life. Our goal is to raise $1,000 for every mile. Will you help us rescue babies? Preborn invites you to sponsor Savannah, Phoenix, and Emily as they walk 132 miles for the unborn. 100% of your donation will go towards saving babies' lives. And during this month of May, through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, saving twice as many babies. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Be sure to mention you heard about the Walk for the Unborn on Janet Meffer today. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Great to have you with us and great to be talking with award-winning author Ace Collins. The book is called Stories Behind the Songs and Hymns About Heaven. And I love so many of these hymns and songs that you've included in the book, Ace. We were talking a little bit about, in particular, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Wallace Willis, and the Negro Spiritual that everybody will know and the backstory there. But, you know, when we were talking about rivers and you mentioned how important it was, the theme of the Jordan River and, you know, Jordan River and the Bible and how much this imagery comes up, you've got another hymn that you mentioned in the book, Shall We Gather at the River. Can you talk about that one and, and what sure. the backstory is to that one? Yeah. Robert Lowry was the writer of that song, and Lowry had grown up on the Ohio River. So, uh, obviously, the river was very important to his life. Uh, there was a song, in other words, there was a back when America was going west, and everything that took you west, uh, at that particular point, was the river. The Ohio River took you to Indiana, Illinois, and the Western Territories. So he looked at the river, you know, as a conduit, that, as a child that took you to great adventures. And then when he became a preacher, and it was in the midst of the Civil War, uh, the river also took people away to war that never came back. <laughs> and so he was in the midst of a time when one out of three people at max went to church. America was not in the days of before the Civil War, a, a, a country where everybody went to church, about 30% of the people did. Oh, wow. And so he was, the congregation that was coming in and he was seeing on a daily basis was, because of the Civil War, was filled up with people who normally didn't come to church, and they had lost loved ones, and he had to come up with an answer. And so he was looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, one day in his study, very hot day, and he couldn't cool off. And he began to look at all the imagery in Revelation about a river and about other things. And I think the miracle of this thing was most preachers who read Revelation go back and scare their congregation to death <laughs> with what they say. You know, here's a man who found 
something positive that would soothe and comfort the congregation. He looked at a life where the river was leading to a place where we would all gather again together. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it would be like a picnic on the grounds that were so common back then as they gathered along the river and had their picnics and sang their hymns. This was the great reunion. And so when he wrote that, you know, he was using Revelation in a very much different way than most people do. He was he was announcing, it was really announcing not as much wrath and destruction as it was bringing people together, together in the comfort that went with that. Wow. Um, you know, when I was asked to write this book, it was fascinating because I wrote too many stories. There were too many great stories to go in one book. That's And so I... I, I sent them too much material, and <laughs> the editors came back to me, and they said, well, you know, we're going to cut this to 30 songs. And I said, okay, but I've got one favor to ask. And I said, you can cut out what songs you want to cut out, but the book has to begin with Wayfaring Stranger, and it has to end with Victory in Jesus. Right. And, and those were my two directives in writing this, and I wanted to hang on to those two songs because I thought they were the bookends this project needed to really tell the full story of not just going to heaven, but most of these songs talk about bringing a bit of heaven to earth mm-hmm. and, and our ability as Christians to do that for people who are lost. Well, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So talk about those two hymns then when you're talking about Wayfaring Stranger and Victory in Jesus, you know, people will know these songs, but what makes them bookends, would you say? I start with Wayfaring Stranger because I think it, it, it is the story of the Good Samaritan. It is a story of a man or a woman, whoever wrote the song, who is going from place to place. Obviously, they're probably either displaced or a refugee. They're very poor. And they're looking for someone to reach out and comfort them, someone to offer them a hand, someone to offer them food, clothing. And they continually get passed by. And yet, they have tremendous faith, and they know that when they get to heaven, they won't be passed by, mm-hmm. that Jesus will welcome them with open arms and give them everything they need. They will be loved for the first time. They will be accepted for the first time. And I think Wayfaring Stranger is a wonderful story in a song format that is much like the Good Samaritan. We need to be looking for these people, not looking in the mirror as much as looking outside the window for people who literally are, you know, as a pastor would say, going through hell Hmm. here on earth, and we need to show them that the heaven is there for them, and they don't have to wait till they die. They can actually experience some of it right now, and the way that happens is for us to share a bit of our faith, a bit of our heaven on earth with them. And Hmm. I thought it was very, very important to start the book with that. Victory in Jesus, meanwhile, uh, that I ended the book with, I think is one of the most incredible films, I mean, one of the most incredible hymns ever written. And I think it is because of the story behind it. You have Eugene Bartlett, one of the greatest hymn writers of all time, wrote over 500 hymns. I mean, this is a man who was brilliant. His ability to shape thoughts into music, gosh, you know, has there ever been anybody like him? I always refer to him in a way, if people saw the recent PBS country music special, as the Hank Williams of gospel music, because he could take things that were simple, put them in a simple format, and give us complex thoughts that we could understand in music. And he wrote 
so many great songs. Everybody will be happy over there. Camping in Canaan land, set my soul on fire. <laughs> he also wrote some country songs that are kind of fun. I mean, you know, like take an old cold tater and wait. But he was returning at 53 years old from a tour across the world. He had sung before Kings. He was a very important person in the Great Depression. He never got poor because of how well his songs sold. And people always said if he was ever challenged, if everything didn't go his way, he would lose his face. On this train coming back, he had a, he had a stroke. And by the time he got to his home, he could not even form a word. He was stuck in his bed. He could go nowhere. He'd gone from a world to a room in a brief instant. And people were watching to find out when Bartlett was going to lose his face. <laughs> and they watched him over the course of several weeks form his hand into a fist. And they were waiting for him to raise that fist to the air and curse God. Look, what have you done this to me? And instead, he jammed a pencil into that fist. And over the course of the next two months, it took him two months now to do this, a man who normally wrote a song in 15, 20 minutes, two months of constant work and sweating, wrote his testimony that showed he had not lost his faith. And a man who could no longer sing gave us victory in Jesus. Oh, wow. And victory in Jesus, if you read the words, the first verse and the second verse talks about his trials, talks about the weakness, talks about the illness, but the mere fact that at the end there is victory. And I think it's one of the most powerful, powerful song stories I've ever come across in my entire life. That is so Of course, he great. died before it was even actually ever published. What a great song, though. What a great legacy. Do you have a particular favorite out of all the hymns and songs about heaven that you studied and all the stories that you came across? Did one just, just as a hymn that you would sing in church or sing at home, is there one in particular that you like the best? I, I don't know. I, I think there are so many great stories in each one of these. They all came out, come away being your children, and each one has a different sure. um, selling point. But I do think when you look at a story... When you look at the stories and you realize that Beyond the Sunset was inspired by a, a man who couldn't see, hmm. you know, in, in the midst of a thunderstorm rolling in and all those other things, he watched a sunset with his mind over the waters, you know, and, and told the songwriter, you know, that's the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen. Hmm. And I think when, when you're looking at that, you know, you're looking at, at the ability of a believer to see beyond what he can visually process and therefore go into uh, a a place where, where he has shown, if you will, in his mind, all the beauty and glory that is heaven. And I think that's maybe an example of what a lot of us, we, we get lost in a world of woe, if you will, and fail to see the blessings that are all around us and also fail to see the opportunities to help. Yeah. I, I was struck as I wrote this book, and, and the strict scripture that came back to me time and time again was Christ's directive to his disciples in Matthew 25, 35 through 40, reaching out to the least of these. Because at least half of these songwriters were the least of these. Oh, man. That's and yet neat. they found grace. Yeah. No, nothing's more clear than good old gospel ship, where, oh. which was written by a former slave. That is so yeah. neat. Well, people can read all of these stories in the book. It's called Stories Behind the Songs and Hymns About Heaven by Ace Collins. And Ace, it was so good to have you here. Thank you very, very much for being with us. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Well, you too. God bless you, Ace. Thanks for joining us on Janet Mafford today. We always appreciate you tuning in and are grateful for you. We'll see you next time right here. God bless. God bless.